from tadpoles to praying mantises, Victorian aquariums to Victorian ghosts, it could only be Wildest Britain. I'm Hugh Collingbourne and this is Wildest Britain. Welcome again to Wildest Britain. Now this is about the wilds, the outside, the landscape, the countryside, nature in Britain. And so I've come outside again. I'm walking through a small woodland area. I live in the southwest of England. If you followed any of the previous shows, you'll know that I'm in North Devon. I'll give you a little portrait of what the day is like today. Yesterday, last night, we had really, really heavy rain, quite stormy, lots of trees apparently been blown down in the locality around here. Now, fortunately in this little woodland I'm in, we're in a sheltered valley with a stream at the bottom. It doesn't look as though there have been any trees actually blown down. Where I am at the moment, the trees are still quite bare. Uh, there's ivy as in leaf, but the actual the other trees, the oak, the beech trees, they are still quite bare. In the shadow of the trees, there is it looks like it looks like sort of dense grass, but actually this is uh, these are bluebells. They're not yet in flower. Well, I, that's not quite true. I've seen one or two that have started to put forth flowers but uh, mostly it's just green it looks it looks just like grass amongst the bluebells we have got some flowers there's some uh, some primroses very pale yellow flowers low growing I'm just stooping now to have a look at one so they've got uh, five petals and right in the center there's a deep yellow sort of circle primroses i think are just stunningly beautiful flowers i don't understand when you go to garden centers they have different cultivated types primulas all sorts of different you know pinks and funny colors the primrose the the natural primrose is just such a perfect flower i don't really understand why anybody wants to change it so i'm walking now down and towards this river it's just a stream actually it's not really a river um, a stream at the bottom of the valley it's fairly clear today uh, in spite of the rain last night the, it's not too full I can with some care wade across it and now I'm across on the other side of the valley can you hear this? You, there's quite a lot of bird song around. I'll just be quiet for a second, see if we can capture some of the, uh, the sounds of the birds. So the, the birds are quite active at the moment, obviously. You know, it's quite a busy time for them getting their nests sorted out. Uh, I'm coming up, I'm walking up to the other side of the valley now. Let's see what else I can see up here. There's still quite a few ferns out. Now, if we get a very hard winter, the ferns all die back. 
it hasn't been a terribly cold winter this year, quite wet, but not really cold. So I'm coming out on the other side of the valley. It's quite a clear sky at the moment, a light cloud. But after last night with all the storm and the rain, this is, uh, this is quite a nice change. Uh, apart from that, what else can I see? There's masses of, of brambles. Uh, later in the year they'll produce uh, black berries, which I shall be picking uh, towards the end of summer. Uh, nothing much else to be seen, just the bare trees at the moment. I can't see any any trees at all in leaf. Uh, gorse is in leaf, the spiny, spiky gorse bushes. And in flower, it seems that gorse seems to be in flower just about any time of the year around here. Bright, intense, yellow flower. Uh, the trees themselves, I can see the branches. Some of the branches are quite covered in lichens, and which is supposed to be a sign of very clean air, which we certainly have around here, uh, out in the wilds of the North Devon countryside. And some of the branches are also covered in mosses and algaes and uh, all sorts of other little plant life. Uh, so that's about it. There's, uh, as I say, the the birds are quite active, but the trees are still quite bare. The ground is really, really sodden with all the rain. And I'll come back later in the year to give you an update when the trees are are in leaf and uh, to see what else is going on in the countryside around here. As far back as I can remember, our house was full of animals. Insects, slowworms, gerbils, chameleons, not to mention cats, dogs and occasional guinea pigs. When my family went on holiday when I was a boy, we took our pet praying mantis. Lots of people take dogs, but we took a praying mantis. It was my brother's praying mantis, and its name was Creepy. Now, I was born and spent much of my childhood in Wales. If you've never been to Wales, you may at least have seen a version of Wales in Hollywood films, such as How Green Was My Valley. The real Wales is much like the Hollywood Wales, apart from the fact that the people there don't spend all their time singing. Though they certainly do sing from time to time, often late at night in the pubs, where they should not be due to the closing time, which has frequently long gone by the time the singing starts. My elder brother was a keen amateur entomologist. He kept insects. All sorts of insects, beetles and grubs and stick insects, and creepy, the praying mantis. In fact, the first time I ever came to Devon, which is where I live now, was on holiday with my mother, father, brother and creepy. Every night we'd go searching by torchlight for grasshoppers and crickets and flies with which to feed creepy. While my brother kept insects, 
I kept fish. Tropical fish, bought in a tropical fish shop, sticklebacks and minnows caught in a pond, blennies and gobies caught in rock pools. Keeping rock pool animals in an aquarium is much harder than keeping freshwater animals for the simple reason that the chemistry of seawater is more complex. The salt becomes more concentrated through evaporation. Some chemicals in the water get used up by the animals that live in it. And there's also the problem of pollution caused by the decay of food or animal waste. When I was a boy, the management of aquarium seawater was more difficult than it is now, and that was partly because fewer people kept saltwater aquariums, so the problems were not as well understood as they are now. And it was partly because the technology, uh, things like the water filters, the lighting and so on, well, that simply wasn't as good as it is now. But even so, I managed to keep a broad range of native marine animals in aquariums. Anemones, prawns, whelks, starfish, hermit crabs and fish. Even quite delicate fish, such as pipefish, which look very like long, thin, straightened out seahorses. Of course, I had to do regular maintenance of my aquariums. I had to filter out the muck from the bottom of the tank. I had to top up the water using fresh water to replace water that had evaporated. And I also had to do frequent seawater changes. In addition, my aquariums used undergravel filtration. That took the form of perforated plastic plates right across the bottom of the aquarium. At one or two corners of this plate, there were rigid plastic tubes, I suppose about an inch in diameter, that led vertically up to the water surface. An air pump blew air into the bottom of these tubes, and the bubbles rose up the tubes, thereby drawing water from under the perforated base plates. And as the water was drawn from the base plate, then more water was sucked down through the gravel to replace it and that encouraged bacteria to grow on the gravel and helped to break down the pollutants in the water. Under gravel filtration is still widely used by aquarists today, but other types of filtration are also used to make it easier to maintain a good water quality. Actually, saltwater aquariums have quite an interesting history, and it all began back in, back the, in the 19th, 19th century. century. When the Victorians first started keeping seawater aquariums, they had very little idea of how to keep the water fresh. They didn't even have artificial aeration to help them. Aerators, which are now commonplace among fish keepers, weren't invented until the 20th century. Though some very elaborate and expensive tanks did have water pumps that created fountains to spray water into the air and then back into the tank again. Rich Victorians employed their servants to go down to the sea at regular intervals and bring back fresh seawater. While poorer Victorians, in all probability, just watched their tanks get filthier and filthier, murkier and murkier, until the poor animals died. One very notable Victorian who deserves special mention was Philip Henry Goss. It was he, apparently, who invented the term aquarium. 
prior to that, various more long-winded terms such as aquatic vivarium had been used. Goss was quite innovative in his approach to keeping marine animals in tanks. He emphasised the importance of creating balanced environments with both plants and animals. And he even formulated a recipe for artificial seawater. And that's to save your servants all that travelling to and from the seaside, I suppose. Goss wrote a number of books to explain how to keep an aquarium, and he provided valuable information such as how to remove impurities by siphoning off water, then passing it through a filter, and returning it to the aquarium. Now, this may seem quite crude by modern standards, but in the middle of the 19th century, it was quite an inventive and methodical approach. Now, while these methods have been superseded, it's still fascinating, I think, to read Goss's books, and luckily many of them are now available online. For example, you can download scanned copies of his Handbook to the Marine Aquarium, written in 1855, from Google Books or archive.org. Just go to Google and search for Goss, that's G-O-S-S-E, Handbook to the Marine Aquarium, PDF, and that should help you find a copy. Another of Goss's books that I like a lot is called A Naturalist's Rambles on the Devonshire Coast, and that was published in 1853. Now, like Goss, I used to live in London, so what interests me is how remote Devon seems to him, particularly North Devon, which is where I live now. Now, you can get on a train now or jump into your car and get from London to the coast of Devon in a few hours, but to Goss, North Devon seemed incredibly like the back of beyond, so far away, so difficult to get to. And to give you a flavour of what I mean... I'll now read you just a few pages from the opening of Goss's book. And now, and now it's, it's time, time to, to go, go down, down, down to, to the, the library. You are seriously ill, Henry, said my wife. You have been in the study a great deal too much lately. You must throw it all up and take a trip into the country. Oh no, said I, not bad enough for that, I hope. A few days in action, with God's blessing, will set me right. I do not want to leave London. But I got worse. Sitting by the parlour fire, doing nothing was dreary work, and it was not much mended by traversing the gravel walks of the garden in my greatcoat. There was nothing particularly refreshing in the sight of frost-bitten creepers and chrysanthemums in January. To walk about the streets in the suburbs, or even in the city, was dreary too when there was no object in view, nothing to do, in fact, but to spend the time. But after all, the dreariness was in myself. I was thoroughly unwell, overworked, and everybody said there must be a rustication. The doctor added the casting vote. Bad case of nervous dyspepsia. You must give up study and go out of town. I succumbed. Now where shall it be? Leamington? Tunbridge Wells, Clifton. No, none of these. Since I must go, it shall be to the seashore. I shall take my microscope with me and get among the shells and nudibranchs, the sea anemones and the corallines. But what part so promising as the lovely garden of England, fair Devonshire? Devonshire then was decided on. But North or South Devon, the Bristol or the British Channel, Ilfracombe or Torquay, 
Each had its claims for preference. Each was unknown. Each was said to be comely in its kind. South Devon I knew by report to be rich in its marine zoology. North Devon was described as magnificent in scenery. Each, too, had its objections. The South was too relaxing for a nervous complaint. The North was out of the world and difficult of access in winter. So nearly were the pros and cons balanced that the very evening before the time determined on for starting left the point sub judice, when a friend calling a Torquay man settled it. Why not try Mary Church? It is very high and the air is bracing. Moreover, you'll be within an easy walk of the shore at several points. The coast round is indented with coves and inlets. Most of it is very rocky and will give you plenty of hollows and dark pools full of seaweeds and zoophytes, interchanged now and then with sandy and shingly beaches. Try the south first. You will then be as well situated as now for reaching the north coast, should the air not suit you. The council seemed sound and reasonable. The next day the luggage was sent off to the Torquay station, and we all, wife, self, and little naturalist in petticoats, followed by easy stages. And very pleasant it was to us to find ourselves at the end of January in the midst of the Devonshire lanes. No frosts had as yet sullied the verdure of the hedgebanks or nipped the shrubs in the sweet cottage gardens. Indeed, frost seems here almost unknown, if we may judge by the myrtles dressed in their glossy foliage of deepest green, reaching up to the eaves of houses, and the fuchsias, not always of the most common varieties, whose thick, roughened trunks have evidently braved the open air through many winters. As we trudged, despite the tenacious red mud that lay ankle-deep along the narrow lanes around Mary Church and West Hill, lanes that were even now dark with the tall hedges and the roadside trees that met over our heads, we felt that we had left the rain of winter far behind us. The high sloping banks were fringed everywhere with the long pendant fronds of the heart's tongue fern, the broad arrowy leaves of the wake robin, glossy and black-spotted, and great tufts of the fetid iris, a rare plant elsewhere, were springing up from all the ditches. Strange, warm, damp lanes, so suited for lovers' evening walks, not exactly at this season, to be sure, winding and turning about, ever opening into some other lane that again presently into another, and all leading apparently nowhere, with little birds hopping fiercely about the hedgetops, and the trees overhead, the robin sweetly singing, the tiny goldcrest peeping into the crevices of the ivy, the yellow hammer and the chaffinch in their gay plumage twittering, almost within reach of your hand, and ever and anon we pass some thatched cottage in the sheltered bottom, its little garden, in front trimly kept, and still bright with the blossoms of the chrysanthemums, the trailing roses over the porch displaying a lingering flower or two, and the indispensable myrtle peeping in at the chamber lattice while at one of the lower windows sits the venerable dame in a snowy cap of ancient fashion with horn spectacles on her wrinkled but gentle face, reading her large Bible. Early violets were beginning to peep from their lowly retreats, and very soon we found them in plenty, and the delicate pale yellow primroses quickly bespangled every bank. If you have any comments or messages, you can contact the show by writing to me, Hugh Collingborn, at hughcoll, H-U-W-C-O-L, at 
gmail.com. And now, into the dark side with Freddy Valentine. So once again, I'm online with Freddy Valentine, who's a psychic investigator. We've spoken before, Freddy. You've told us about yep. seances you've done, about uh, ghosts you've encountered. And I'm just wondering, how, how did you actually get started? I mean, how, how does a person become a psychic investigator? What was the first thing that triggered off your imagination and your, your interest in the subject? Well, the thing is, is that I was always interested in the paranormal as a child. I mean, if, if you grew up in the 70s, around the 60s, 70s, the paranormal and horror films were more prevalent than they are today. I mean, now people are very mollycoddled about what kids should watch mm. and what you they should Do you think about th things like Hammer or are you thinking about things like The Exorcist? and All that kind of stuff, yeah. Because when, when I was a kid, I, I remember there was there was a, a school book which my mum found um, from, from uh, when I was about five years old. And you had to draw, this is my house, this is my mum and dad, this is my cat and all that. And you had to write about, draw a picture of what you like to watch on television. Uh, um, and I drew a picture of Frankenstein, you know, yeah. so, um, it, I mean, that, those were horror films, they were considered to be horror, I mean, I, I, I mean, so these days, kids wouldn't be watching that stuff, really, I suppose, they'd be very, there's a lot of, you know, protecting them from stuff like this, yeah. but the, the supernatural, the, the horrifying, the weird, UFOs, ghosts, it was quite um, a, a popular in the 70s, particularly, if you look at kids' TV, you had things like Children of Stones, you had programs like The Twilight Zone was on, and that kind of stuff, so the supernatural was kind of um, very much in your face, you know, the Hammer films, the Hammer House horror TV series, yeah. But there's also a magazine called The Unexplained, which I've mentioned in a previous show uh, to yourself, called, yep. which came out around that time. Um, these days, when something paranormal happens, like UFOs, you get people analysing it, tearing it apart, and now that's a weather balloon, this is that. The Unexplained just reported this. They didn't analyse things. They said, look, here's a picture of an alien. Yeah. So there was no question. So when you read it, and if you're seven years old and you're reading this, you think, look, that's a picture. And you just take it as gospel. But did it, you so, know, you, so when you were reading this magazine, did, did you get equally interested in ghosts and aliens and strange beasts and all the other things or, or, or was there one particular subject that caught you you know fired off your imagination i was fascinated with the whole lot to be honest and the fact that do you know what i mean that it seemed i mean the, th the things that particularly interested me was obviously ghosts spirits witchcraft werewolves vampires mm. that kind of stuff and sea monsters ufo but the whole thing spontaneous human combustion there was so much there but yeah. to me, it was the most fascinating thing I've ever ever come across in my life, you know. And there's a program that came out called uh, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. I remember Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. We'd be wandering along the beach at the beginning yep. with some artefact that had been discovered. And then you have half an hour explaining what it was. And then you'd see him at the end and he'd give his opinion at the end, uh, wandering along the and beach in a sarong, I seem to remember. That's right. And some very dated uh, footage <laughs> of people being interviewed, which is now, now quite comical. But at the time, it, yeah. this is heavy stuff, you know. Yeah. And I had the book from the series. There's like a paperback that came out. with some amazing pictures in it. So I became very fascinated with all that kind of thing at a very young age, you yeah. know, and, and witchcraft. And, and the Hammer films, obviously witchcraft was a factual thing in that, you know. It's, it's, to me, it seemed like the most interesting religion, uh, yeah. paganism, witchcraft. It seemed more logical that, you know, worshipping what you could see around you, which is nature, animals, you know, I mean, the sun, the moon. That, it, to me, that seemed more more um, natural to me than, say, something like Christianity, which although there's a book about it, it wasn't, <laughs> I couldn't see it in my own eyes, you know, yeah. but with, with nature. At, at that time, season. at the time that you were reading this and you were seeing all the films and the TV shows and so on, had you ever experienced anything, you know, supernatural or, or was that later on in life? Um, there was a little bit later on, but I did experience something supernatural. But being a ch child, I was obviously dismissed with your parents saying it's your imagination. But uh, one thing that was very, very um, important to me when I was younger is I went on holiday to, to, to Cornwall. 
uh, with my family. I was probably about seven years old, and we went to a place called Boss Castle, which was a very small little village. You know, it's a very old-style village, little tea shops there and stuff like this. And, of course, I was with my family, my, my parents and grandparents. They were looking around tea shops and things like this. And I was a bit bored as a kid, you know. But then I, I looked out of the corner of my eye. I saw this building, a very old-looking building, very medieval. Um, painted on the side of it was the Witch's House. Mm. And I said to my dad, I said, what's that, the Witch's House? I want to go in there. He said, look, if you, if you get scared, you know, don't blame me. I said, no, 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 I want to go. Because always was a kid, a horror film. If you're scared, don't blame me. You, know? <laughs> you can do it. But, um, but, but um, I, I said, no, I want to go in there. So we went to this, this, this witch's house. And basically what it is, it's now called the Museum of Witchcraft. Right. You know? yeah. And this is presented like when you're a kid, you go to a museum, natural history, science museum. These things are real. These are facts. You know, yeah. um, This museum had voodoo dolls in it. It had witches, torture devices from witch, you know, from witch hunts. Yeah. It had everything you can name in there, tarot cards. Um, do you know what I mean? Teacups. Oh, was, was, was there a connection? In, this is in Boscastle. Was there some history yeah. of witchcraft, particularly in, in Boscastle? Well, the whole of Cornwall is is got a lot of paganism around that area. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's, 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 a, there's history of like the, the King Arthur legends around there, a lot of witchcraft and paganism. It's, it's all tied in with that area. Mm. Um, there's much more, you'd find a lot more, more shops selling stuff like that around there than you would say in, 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 in Berkshire, where I live. Do you know what I mean? There's a mm. few crystals, but there's a lot of very uh, witchcrafty type places there. Mm. But the most, uh, the most stunning thing about this museum is, is on the way out, there was a skeleton in, in a coffin there, um, and it was actually the, the skeleton of an executed witch. Ah. You know, and, and if you're seven years old and you're in a hammer film, you, your jaw mm. drops. You mm. know, you, you're, mm. you're amazed by this, you know. Um, and, and now that, that witch has been given a burial since because it was a real skeleton. She oh. was an actual witch who was executed. But yeah. a lot of locals, uh, you know, local covens said, you know, you shouldn't be putting a, a bones on display. Um, you should give her a proper burial. But that's what they do these days, isn't it? You know, mm. so she's been buried. But that museum is still there. It's called the Museum of Witchcraft in Boscastle. I went back oh. there. I mean, I've been there three times. I went back there a few years ago. It's pretty much the same as it was when I was a kid, apart from the skeleton. So mm. that kind of thing is in my mind. You know what I mean? It's like I want to know more. More about this, um, you know, and then there may be adults saying, "You know, it's a load of nonsense." But you're seeing with your own eyes. You're seeing a museum with mm. your own eyes. You know what I mean? You, you're seeing these these things for real. A museum is an official thing when you're a kid. It's, if it's in there, it's real. You know. So as I got older, you know, I did some experiences. I, I saw some spirits and. And I, and I felt tuned into things, you know what I mean? I felt tuned into, if I go into a, like a place of history, I felt a weird vibe, you know, it's like I felt either a good vibe or a bad vibe. I remember going to Hampton Court as a kid and picking up really negative vibes in certain rooms or feeling good in certain others, do you know what I mean? It's, it's mm. all tied in with what they were told there, me afterwards. I mean, there seemed to be, a, if you go around Britain, there seemed to be a lot of, lot of haunted houses, lot haunted inns, uh, you know, there's... there's, there's have we got more ghosts in Britain, or is it just that you know we we sort of know about all these haunted places? Well, I think a lot of Europe has, you know, it's, it, Britain has got a lot of history, you know, there's a lot of history of ghosts, but also, you know, places like Germany and, and, and some of Eastern Europe, there's a lot of uh, ghost stories there as well. It doesn't mm. seem to be so many in, in America, but because I think their history is relatively new, you know, mm. um, and we've got like medieval, you know, ghosts going way back, do you know what I mean? There's such history in this country here, yeah. but because yeah. other countries are more like America, I think there are still ghosts there, but they're all more recent ghosts than, yeah. than we have, uh, but because a lot of our historical buildings are still standing. Do you That's find, I, I mean, are there, are there more, if you went to a modern town in Britain, would there be as many, you know, are there, are there haunted buildings in modern towns or is it, do you have to go to the old, the small villages and the out of the way, you know, the older places? Well, you do still get stuff in modern towns, you know, you may not get as much, but, you know, but in, in the older buildings, there's more history. I mean, if you say you, you're picking a building that something specific happened there. You know, you can connect to that event. You know, if you go to like a Jack the Ripper location, you can always be able to tune into a spirit that was there, do you know what I mean? Or a victim mm. or that kind of thing. People do that quite a lot. Um, I did actually a weird thing as I was booked to do a seance night, you know, at this, it was a wine bar. And, I, and they told me I was going to be doing it in a cellar. 
there's Ouija board sessions and stuff like this. When I got there, they were actually, I was actually upstairs in the wine bar with the lights on. Mm. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen here, you know. Um, we did Ouija board sessions there, but we did get spirits through. You know, and this is like a modern sort of building. I mean, I assume that there have been other buildings built on that ground before because yeah. London's a very old place. So but when, 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 you, when you do these, I mean, last time we spoke, we, you, you told me quite a bit about your seances. But when you do seances, the spirits, I, I always think, you know, of ghosts, I always think of Victorian. I don't know if it's yeah. because the Victorians just wrote so many ghost stories or if there are more Victorian ghosts. But do, do you get people from particular periods in the past? Is there, a, is there like a golden age for, for these ghosts? And, if you know, are they all Victorian or do they... What's your experience of that? You do get quite a lot of Victorian people coming through. I, mean, I think Victorians were very open to spiritualism and stuff like this as mm. well uh, in that era. So, uh, but, but I've had spirits come through from like the 40s, you know, from, from the war, even recently. People, even if now, seventy people died in the seventies, but right. we get medieval, uh, you know, people coming through that that kind of stuff. People fifteen hundreds, and uh, we, we've had uh, highwaymen come through. A yeah. really weird story about highwaymen. Actually, we did this seance, and uh, I can't remember his name now because we did write it down just a few years ago. But this highwayman came through on on the Ouija board and said that he worked and operated in the area, mm. um, and he was quite, um, I suppose, a bit of a charmer. He was quite um, cheeky. The things he was saying to the ladies, and he was quite. Um, I suppose he was quite a bit of a character, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was quite, you know, and in the seance he came through, somebody went into a trance and, and he spoke through them uh, spontaneously. Well, when we turned the lights on at the end of the night, there was a white feather on the table in front of this lady. It, yeah. it disappeared. Yeah. And she said, well, it must be my dad. She goes, because when he was out walking, he used to always used to pick up a white feather and give it to me, you know. Yeah. And I said, my dad giving me a message, you know. So we thought, fair enough. But when my uh, colleague who does the research, he went and looked up this highway man. We found out he did exist. He did live and work in that area, yeah. um, but he, he was a member of a gang called the White Feather Gang. And what they used to do is a calling card when they drop somebody, leave them a white feather. So there's there's this this gang of highwaymen who go around robbing stagecoaches and so on. I yeah. suppose they, and and they would they would actually leave this white feather to say this is you know it was us. Uh, so so. To, we was here, kind of thing, yeah. you know. You, you were about us, you know, and, and so that, that was we were quite astonished by that because the thing is, with is things happen in the night, but it's only after when you look into the history of things, it makes sense, you know. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Um, you know, things can unravel a little bit. We, I have a group on Facebook for people that, that have been to my seances, so if anything happens afterwards or anything weird happens, yeah. um, they can report on there, you know. And we have had photographs taken, people take, I allow people to take photographs of the events, you know, mm. and we've had spirits come out in the photographs. Yeah, we've had, uh, the last one we did, we had a spectral dog sitting yeah. by somebody's feet in a photograph. Yeah, and that's up on the group as well. And one of the weirdest things was there's, there's a big mirror in one of the venues. We, and if you take a picture in a reflection in there, sometimes you get spirits looking over your shoulder or, or things there, you know, orbs and stuff like this. Mm. And this lady took a picture um, uh, in this mirror and there was a face over her shoulder, like a spectral face, very clear, you know. And she was going, oh, that's amazing. But as we were looking over, another bloke said, I know who that is. He goes, my granddad, he said. I said, really? Anyway, he opened up his wallet, got a photograph out of his granddad, put it next to the picture on this woman's camera, and it's yeah. identical. God. Of all the places, you know, you've been to all these different, you know, haunted houses and, 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 you know, different places. Is there one place in Britain that you really like to, to go to either to, to, you know, look for ghosts or to do a seance? Is, this, is there one great, you know, haunted location that you, you still got this ambition to fulfil? There is a few, yeah. I mean, one particular one, and I did try to hire this a few years ago, it was the Tower of London. Um, Tower of London? Yeah, I mean, they wanted a lot of can money. Can you hire it? Can you, you can, hire you can, you, you can hire it, but it's really? a lot of money. Uh, I, mean, I think, I think they, they're funny about people doing ghost hunts there, because someone did a TV show there a few years ago, and it was a bit of a ridiculous one, you know, yeah. where they kind of set things up a bit. Yeah. 
and they were quite apprehensive. But what I wanted to do is get obviously this is the White Tower where the princes were were, were killed in a tower because two skeletons were found under the stairs there. Mm. Uh, and what I was going to do, I was going to get a Shakespearean expert to talk about the you know the Richard III and the princes, and then go into the tower and do a seance and try to contact the two princes or Richard III himself. Mm. Um, but it was something ridiculous, like a hundred grand for the evening or something stupid like that, you know. And I thought well, I ain't going to cover them on costs alone and <laughs> make a profit. Um, so yeah, it's a very expensive situation. But the other, the other one I like to do is is um, the Elephant Man. I like to try to connect with the Elephant Man. Right. Um, because well, I did where, look into what that. What location would that be? You know, is there some particular building or? Well, I think place. I did look into it, and yeah, in East London, I mean, there's 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 three, there's, there's two major locations really for him. I mean, you could go to Leicester, which is where he was born, but mm. um, I looked into the parts in London where he stayed. The actual route, you know, I don't know if you've seen a film where he was exhibited as a freak before uh, in, the, in the opposite the hospital in, the, in this sort of freak show mm. thing. It was like a shop, so you go into the, the doctor who discovered him, Doctor Trees, would go into this shop, go in the back and look at the Elephant Man. That's when he rescued him and took him to the hospital. Yeah, I read that shop. It's like this little dingy shop, and he's kept behind curtains or something wasn't he and they, that's you correct to yeah go and pay to to look at the poor geezer yeah you pay a shilling and go and see him and you know and that's when he saw him and he took him over to the hospital to, to study mm-hmm. him but that shop is still standing oh. um and what it is now it's a sorry shop um but the storeroom where they where they keep things is the actual room where he was exhibited yeah you know but i was trying to explain to the people who run it about the elephant man and, and i wanted to hire the room but they didn't seem to understand what i was talking about you know, yeah. um, so the but I did people now have the shop don't really know the history of the, the elephant. No, I don't, I don't oh. think they're, they're really interested in it. You know, yeah. um, I did try to talk to them about it, but they, they weren't really clued yeah. up on it. They were sort of like, you know, they're interested in making some money, I think, but they wasn't mm. really sure what we wanted to do there. Mm. Um, but it was very vague. But um, the, the other thing, the hospital itself, over the road, London Hospital, mm. there was a wing of that where the elephant man lived. He, he had mm. his own private room. Mm. And he stayed in this room, and that's where, you know, he lived. Um, but that was, the, in the war, the, the hospital was bombed, and that part of the hospital was uh, destroyed. So mm. that his room no longer exists. But the museum there has a lot of his personal artefacts and stuff like that. So it's finding the location to find the right place to do it. You know, the, mm. the, the shop would be great, uh, or, or the part of the hospital where his room stood would be good. Yeah. Um, but obviously, a hospital is very hard, hard to hire a hospital for the evening, particularly if it's an operational one. Yeah, yeah. When you go to other places, like when you go to haunted houses or hotels and so on, how, how do you make contact with people? Do you just sort of phone up and say, I want to do a seance here? Or, or I mean, do, do people, do people, how do they react? Do, do, are they used to this? Or, or do some people think, um, you know, this is a bit, you know, something that they don't want to get involved in? Well, it's rarer than you think because, you know, seances, they, they, people tend to hold them in their homes or stuff like that. To actually do events like this, I, I think that I'm only one of the few people that actually do the ones, the, the sort of ones I do. Mm. You know, there are investigations, there are people who do ghost hunts, but the word seance scares a lot of people, you know. Mm. And uh, some of the most amazing buildings in the UK tend to be ones that are associated to churches. Yeah, they're old, you know, and because they're Christian beliefs, they won't allow me to, to do anything there. I mean, there's, mm. there's two particular buildings I had a problem with. One of them, there's an old workhouse in Maidenhead in Berkshire. And uh, it's amazing. It's now a hospital. It's a very functional hospital. But um, on the grounds, they've got the old workhouse pump is there, still there. And they've got the church, um, the work, the, 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 no, the workhouse church, where all the people in the workhouse would go. Now, this church is amazing because it's pretty much untouched since 1860. Mm. So all the pews are the same. All the fittings are the same. Everything's like, the only thing that's changed is the church organ itself. Um, I went in there and the vibe was so strong. And the lady, I spoke to a female vicar, and I said to her, look, I'd like to hire for a paranormal investigation. And she said, I have to think about it, she said. And she came back to me. She was very nice about it, but she said, look, because of our Christian beliefs, you know, we consider this to be dabbling with the occult and the, par- mm. and the paranormal is not within our, 
our beliefs so we can't really touch it you know so mm. she's very nice about it but the other places is, is um there, there's a sounds i want to do to contact um this lady, this lady called elizabeth dyer who was like um, a baby farmer in the is victorian that elizabeth times dyer, was that yeah um she's, that, she's someone, baby farmers in the victorians what what it was explain, is, explain a bit about that yeah what it was is people in in the in the victorian times they'd have a child out of wedlock it's considered to be a very shameful thing so for the yeah. girl got pregnant she wasn't married it was it was it's embarrassing to keep the baby for the family, you know. So what they do is they'd someone put an advert in the paper and mm. say, "I'll look after your child for you." So they send the baby away to this this, this woman who's like a nanny really, mm. uh, and they send money each month uh, to feed them and clothe them, and they'd look after them, just take mm. them to take the shame away, I suppose. But this lady, she what she did is she actually killed the babies and took the money, mm. um, and she's quite a notorious figure. And, and there's three locations in the UK where she was she was at. One is in Reading, which is where she was caught and apprehended, um, and the other one is in. This was in uh, Bristol, um, but the one I wanted was you know the old Bailey prison used to be Newgate Jail. Right now that's where she was uh, executed. Mm. Um, so it's now the old Bailey Court. So there's, although I could do a sounds in there, there's parts outside that's still part of the old wall there and that kind of thing. So we could do a good ghost walk there. Mm. Um, and her ghost has been seen around the area. There's a video on um, YouTube where it shows her ghost appearing. Right. Um, but the, the opposite is a church. I think it's St. Sepulchre's Church. And now this church is amazing because underneath there's a tunnel um, which led to Newgate Jail. Hmm. Now this tunnel was what they take the convicted prisoners down. They take them out of their cell, take them down to the church. They ring a bell outside the cell, take them down to the church, read them their last rites, take them back to the jail, and then hang them. Now this tunnel's still there, but it's blocked off at one end. Yeah. But inside the actual uh, church as well, they've got the bell in the glass case, and the bell was the one they used to ring outside the condemned cell before they executed them. Hmm. This would be a wonderful place to do a séance, but again, because of the religious aspect. They're not very keen on us going in there. Yeah. yeah. So, so there are places yeah. like that that are really good, but if you did something like that, it sounds like I mean, it could be quite a, sort of scary seance because she doesn't sound like the sort of person you want to meet in real life, let alone. No. Well, the weird thing with that is, is I'm, I'm still going to do it. What is I researched her in depth because I do psychology. I managed to find a newspaper, an, an original copy of the Times from the yeah. day that she was executed. Yeah. Um, but but there's a book about her called the, the what's it called? Oh, I can't. It's called the, the Lady Who Killed for. Kill babies for money or something like this. There's a biography of her. Mm. But when she's in Reading, at the end, when her house, when she's arrested, her daughter was involved as well. Mm. Um, all the artifacts in her house were auctioned off mm. to locals who come in the house and buy stuff off. Now, I've placed an advert um, around, all around the local area saying, Did anybody have any relatives who may have auctioned something or bought something from this house? You know, like an ancestor, like a grandparent or something like this, early, like Victorian times, you know. Um, and funny enough, I did get a few responses. And what I did receive, what I bought from people, was baby clothes found in the house. Yeah. Um, Victorian baby clothes and some bottles now that she poisoned the baby so although these bottles are generally tend to be things of medicine and stuff like that yeah. I've technically got the murder weapon yeah you know so the psychometry and taking these objects along with us it would be a very powerful sounds you know yeah. it, not for the faint hearted but it'd be <laughs> it doesn't you know, sound good <laughs> you know but, we, but funny enough saying about babies now we've had a baby come through in a sense we had some, I, I sometimes have people going to trances yeah. You know, and, and channel spirits, see if they go through them. And I had a man, he's about in his 40s, I suppose, turn into a baby. He's like Googling on the floor and dribbling and stuff like this. Um, and he was quite embarrassed when he came out of it. But yeah. um, his wife, she channeled as well a nanny, and it was her child. When you say channel, that, that means that a, a spirit communicates through through this person. Yeah, they're going to trance and they start talking through them. Their voice changes. Some of yeah. their facial characteristics transform, um, and the spirit talks through them. You know, their yeah. voice changes. Yeah. So his wife turned into this nanny and started talking in a very stern voice and very old-fashioned way of speaking. She came out, obviously Victorian way of speaking. But he turned to a baby, and apparently she had died 
working there. She was a single mother, I think, or, wid- or widow, and the baby was crawling around looking for the mum, and that's what happened. So we reunited them, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the man he was very embarrassed afterwards, but it all dribbled over his face, and <laughs> he became a baby. You know, he, he was quite <laughs> quite taken aback by it. But yeah, yeah you get all sorts, you get all sorts. But like I say, some builders I really want to go to, but you can't. You know, because the people, unless I lied my way in, but then I don't want to be. And are, are, there, are there any anything you've got planned? Any, I mean, have you got any plans for the coming year? Yeah, there's, there's things. I mean, I'm looking at going to, to the area of Bray, which has got a very interesting. I mean, they filmed the Hammer horror films there, so if I start, it's got a, a good spooky vibe to it. You know, right. there's the old Oakley Court hotels there, which has got a lot of history to it. But there's, the, there's there's ghosts around the area of hooded monks who walk down the street. You know, right. um, and there's also there's a very old church there. I think it's medieval. It's got a shield in the gig. You know, um, which is like, like, like an Irish goddess there. Yeah. Um, so those churches have been supposed to be quite spiritual and quite special. So I, I, I feel that may have been built on the site of a pagan temple as well. So we're, we're going to be doing one in Bray. I'm also looking at trying to do one. Um, we're trying to work out with Sweeney Todd, fact or fiction, and do a seance at the location of Sweeney Todd's barbershop in Fleet Street. Right. Is, is that um, I mean, Because I, it was a it was a fictionalised story, wasn't it? But was it was it actually based on a? Well, it's, there's a lot of, I looked into it because we talked about one of the podcasts is that there is, some people say it's based on a, a French story that happened, a, a similar story, you know, somebody who was uh, killing people and the neighbour put them into pies. Hmm. But the actual location of the shop and the and location of, of you know, a, a pie shop is on Fleet Street um, and there's a church next door. But when, the, when people were excavating the shop and doing it up, they found bo- loads of bodies, in the, those skeletons in the cellar hmm. of the location of Sweeney Todd's shop. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of a question mark over it, you know. There's there's not many records of him, yeah. um, you know what I mean, of his execution or his arrest or, or the paper. But there is a thing called the Newgate Calendar, which is like a, I suppose it was like a, a sensationalist newspaper, yeah. which would tell you about the stories at the time. You know, I suppose you get things like the Sun or Sunday Sports Day, saying with sensational stories, and it does mention Sweeney Todd in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that is a factual thing or not, but but to go to there and to find out would be quite an interesting thing, particularly if there's a lot of bodies found in the cellar down there. Um, it'll be quite an interesting thing to see if Sweeney Todd is the fact or fiction and shall we speak to him and see what his real name was and you find out the a, truth you do lead an interesting life everybody else is thinking you know what am I going to do t- going into work <laughs> today and you're thinking I'm going to contact Sweeney Todd <laughs> that's the sort of things I think about that's, that's the con- to me it's a normal life you know I look at people who, who sit and watch you know I don't know, things like Breaking Bad and, and oh, that's a weird life isn't it what they're doing you know <laughs> whereas I do I have some bizarre things we've done you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's some strange experiences but, uh, but it's fun you know yeah. it, it keeps life yeah. interesting well, thanks again for talking to us Freddie just to remind people you can, you can find lots more about the uh, paranormal and the psychic investigations that Freddie does on Freddie's own podcast which is at tell us it's www.themysticmenagerie.com. The or Mystic Menagerie. The Mystic Menagerie.com. Menagerie. And, um, and uh, thanks again for talking to us. And no Anytime. doubt we'll talk again sometime in the future. Bye, Bye for now. You're very welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Now, a couple of months ago, in the... Actually, it's the first podcast I did... Um, if you listen to it, you might remember that I came outside and I found in a pond out here there's a great mass of frog spawn. Well, I've come back again now to see if it's still there and whether it's developed at all. Let's have a little look. Ah, oh, there's some movement here. There's something... There's something... Oh, there's some tadpoles. I wasn't expecting there to be so many. 
tadpoles already. So the frog spawn has indeed developed into tadpoles. I think there's also something else down there. I think there might have been... I saw a newt the other day, so maybe that's what was moving down here. But no, the, uh, the frog spawn seems to all have uh, all have hatched into into little tadpoles. There was also some in a, in a little, not in the pond, but just in a little puddle up here, and I think that has probably well I can't see any sign of that whether it whether they were lucky and because it's been so wet that they might have been lucky and actually uh, survived to emerge into tadpoles tadpole when you think about it that's a pretty weird name for a baby frog so weird in fact that I decided to try to find out what it means this is what the Oxford English Dictionary has to say. Tad, it says, comes from the Middle English word for toad. Pole is head, so tadpole means toad head, which is also pretty strange. I mean, why toad head? Another dialect word for tadpole is polywog. This is, as far as I'm aware, no longer used in Britain or well, maybe it is in some regions, but certainly not very widely. But I, I think it is still used in America. The OED claims that this, once again, comes from pole, head, plus wiggle. So polywog means head wiggle. Very odd. Wildest Britain is a Dark Neon production, written and presented by Hugh Collingbourne, psychic consultant Lord Freddie Valentine, music by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. If you want to contact the show, write to me, Hugh Collingbourne, at hughcoll at gmail.com. That's H-U-W-C-O-L at gmail.com. And to be sure never to miss an episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast. <laughs>